Hello, my name is Andrew Dahlke. Welcome to episode 3 of Molecular Coding. Shortly after OpenAI's CUP user conference in 2011, I dropped by the OpenAI offices to interview Bob Tobert. He is now the Vice President of Development at OpenAI. I first met Bob at a Python conference many years ago. He was working for Boringer Ingelheim and showed off that their email addresses were so long that they didn't fit on the front of their business cards. Back then, he was an OpenAI customer who had written Python wrappers for OELib so he could develop his software in Python instead of C++. That influenced OpenAI to hire Bob and move him out to the headquarters in Santa Fe, where he's been since 2002. My other two memories of meeting Bob are that he served in the Navy on a nuclear sub and that he enjoys talking. That last observation is still true, which made the interview enjoyable, but it also encouraged me to put off typing up the transcript for this podcast for a long time. This interview took place in Santa Fe, New Mexico on the 20th of March, 2011. So welcome to another edition of the Muckler Coding. I'm here with Bob Tolbert at OpenEye. And I wanted to talk with him about software engineering and informatics, especially software engineering at a company that develops informatics software. So can you introduce yourself and talk a bit about what OpenEye does? Yes, I'm Bob Tolbert. I'm the VP of Development at OpenEye. Uh, OpenEye writes tools for uh, informatics and molecular modeling. And we sell both toolkits and applications. A big part of our business is the fact that we sell toolkits and both across chem informatics and modeling, etc. in C++, Python, Java, and C Sharp. So one of the things I wanted to start off with was talking about the um, t- toolkit development. Because there's a the question I've had in talking to other people is how do you develop APIs? I mean, there's a dozen or so software libraries that exist, and they're, some of them are really good and easy to use, and some of them are kind of more complicated. How do you go about starting up a new API, like, like um, when OEKM started or the Depiction Library? Or well, I think the, the first thing that drives the API design is, 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 is kind of a core functionality, mm-hmm. our desire to, to think about uh, how you don't want things like they were in the past. I mean, uh, OEKM is, you know, if you will, like a third-generation uh, toolkit we think of things that maybe even predated daylight in our first generation, and OELib was a bit of a second generation to try to use object-oriented stuff, but in the non-abstract way, a lot of the design of OEKIM was done in, to prevent the sins of the past, to avoid things like um, leaky abstractions. So do you actually then actively go out and look at existing APIs and how they worked, or was so it we, experience? We, I think... The, what we did with OEKIM was look at some existing stuff. Now, you have to realize we started OEKIM in 2000, 2001. C++ and template support and compilers was relatively new. Um, and there was a decision to, to, to do C++ and do it right. Um, again, some of the things we wanted to avoid were a molecule object that had too many member functions. It was kind of overwhelmingly large and bloated. To use templates not for template sake, but where they make sense for things like predicates and iterators and, and other things. To not to remove as much as we could of uh, things like internal implementation from the API. Because if you let those abstractions leak out and people start using backdoors, you're stuck and you can't change. This was a fundamental flaw in, in OELIT. Um, and in fact, the OEKIM API went through. I would say a year, a year and a half of real argument and real 
let's try again and reel, throw it all away and start over because it was a clean slate to some extent from the API point. What's going to be in a molecule? What's going to be in an atom? Do molecules own atoms or do they just know about them? These kind of things. Mm -hmm. We're all core decisions. And then the API, we're going to use C++. We're not going to expose STL iterators and things like that. We're going to use our own iterators and make them work the way iterators should work. And once you build that core, then 10 years later, if you want to go design the new library, you can still use that same philosophy to design the next API. Right? So if I want to design the next, a new API for Depict or a new API for a new library, we can go back to those design principles. And there's enough people here now who are in, bought into those principles that you can get a group of people together and say, okay, let's... Let's talk about this new design and, you know, kind of works through argumentation and exper experimentation. And even some things that we've done very recently, we did it all, we wrote it all up, we made it all work, we used it for a while, we started writing examples and go, this doesn't feel like OECAM. It doesn't feel right. So would the, the depiction library rewrite be like that? And that's one of the things we've done, is that the because the very original API was kind of something that was a bit put together out of other pieces. It never felt quite like other things. In the rewrite, what we were trying to do is manage completely replacing the underpinnings so that the pictures are better and more flexible and, and, and can leverage a lot more stuff that we know how to do now, but not make the API so drastically different that people didn't know what to do. Right? But then when we got it mostly done, we said, well, this is great. We fixed the pretty part. We've made better pictures. We can be do, but we've still got this kind of not great API that we're expecting people to learn something new. So they're going to have to learn something new anyway. Mm -hmm. We might as well bring them all the way and say, well, they're probably already an OECAM user to use this. They have to be. So why not push it further down the road of making it feel like it belongs right. as part of that group and further break the tie to the previous API? Um, and, and I think that that's something that's still a work in progress, but I feel like we're getting closer to doing that. So when you do the API development, then you're, you're saying you build other tools that are based on the API internally, for internal use to try it out? And then... yeah, I think you can't really, you can't really know if an API is great until you write the documentation and you write the examples and you try to explain how to use it to somebody else. And when you do that, before you even actually show it to somebody else, it's the act of explaining it to yourself while you're writing that documentation or writing that example, you find a hole or a flaw or a, wow, I have to do these three things in the right order or it doesn't work. Is that a good thing? Or why do I keep cutting and pasting these eight lines into every example? Why is that not a single free function that does those eight things in the right order every time without me having to worry about it? So that explains some of the evolution of the toolkit that I've seen over time, such as the um, higher-level functions for assigning aromaticity appropriate for smiles versus... Yeah. Because I used to go to the website and grab those eight lines and... It's a lot of that code. stuff. The Piction used to have this kind of set of standard things that you had to do. It was boilerplate. You could copy it out of an example. Mm -hmm. Or you could just write a function that did it. A lot of users wrote that function and, you know, made it and called it themselves. We just added it to the API. And now we have some very high-level functions that, that do that. You know, the important thing is to not only write the high-level functions because of the stuff that people have they want to do something different. They don't want to 
do stereo that way. They want they don't want to depict this or that. They have some special case. The key is to write the low level open enough where people can be pretty flexible, and then write the high level when you don't want to have to think or you, you want to go and write the simple example. So how do you balance off then the needs of the people who want low level and performance versus the needs who want high level and not worry about it? Well, I, I'm not saying that high level is not performant. Mm-hmm. I think most of the high level stuff is written to be performant. We don't write high level stuff that does extra work just because it's easy. We don't really do that. I've actually given an example of my teaching of the OpenEye code versus, say, the um, RDK code and other libraries, is that OpenEye has the ability to take a molecule and then the OE parse smiles, parses the smiles into the molecule, whereas almost every library says, give us smiles, make a molecule of it. And the OpenEye tools are much faster because they can just reset the molecule rather than pressing into it. So I think it's more complicated there for for me to teach people that they have this two-step process. But I can measure ten percent faster performance just because of doing that. Oh, that yes, I think that's probably true. And 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 there are other things where sometimes to protect people at the first level, you have to reinitialize an object rather than reuse it because they don't clear it out. For example, you, you have trouble. I mean, there are a number of things that that, that do that. Um, but I think we tend to write things at a reasonably modular level where we decide this is a function that other people might need in the company. This is a function that only I need because it's an implementation detail and I'm writing it as a function just to break it out. Uh, versus this is a function that a customer would need to actually be able to do this. We have three levels. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, we even have discussions about where different APIs go. Is this going to be a public API? Is this going to be an implementation API? Is it going to be a, a private API? And one of the advantages of the private API is, is not so much that we're hiding stuff from people. It's not hiding performance or anything else. It's that sometimes you don't know, right? Because this is the other example. It's like, well, let's say we come up with a new function or a new feature, and we're not sure yet whether this is going to be public. It's going to be part of the toolkit. If you make it private, other people in the company, other products in the company can start to consume it. You can have some kind of internal customer feedback, and, and then when you're happy and say, oh, well, I'm using it, but it doesn't work the way you think it does or it doesn't work the way I need it to, you can refactor it internally first and then push it into the public API. And then you've got a better chance of assume, of having the public API be stable because people are not going to have to change. They won't be having to give us so much feedback on, well, well this is not the way it was, the way it used to be. And, you know, particularly for Depict, this is important, too. This is such a big API change. We're not changing it. We're actually creating a new API. The old one's still going to be there for an iteration or two, so that people's code will still build against the old API. And then we'll, the new one is all new classes with all new names. They can learn, they can port, and then slowly we'll deprecate the old one. Right. So you mentioned documentation when you're developing new APIs. How easy is it to tell people document all the code that they do? Since that's not a very well, software developers don't usually like documenting. That's kind of like telling a kid to make their bed and brush their teeth, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they know it's what's good for them, but it's not always what they want to do. And and it is a battle. And I think that we are getting better because we have gotten to a size now where most of us are consumers of somebody else's code. There was a time when we were small enough that we all wrote the code and consumed the code ourselves. And so at that point, documentation was only for, was only extra work. 
But the minute you, as an internal customer, say, I want to know how to use this library that I didn't write, and you have a choice between digging through a header file or opening up you know, a Python wrapper in, in an editor or going to the documentation, and you realize, holy moly, I can go to the documentation, there's the function, there's an example usage, I can even cut and paste this code into mine as example code and move on. And you do that as a group. I think everybody has enough of those experiences and they realize they've benefited from somebody else doing documentation. It's a little easier to do it yourself. So if someone open eyes working with the documentation finds that it's not well written enough, they understand how to use it, for instance, what's the process then of updating it? Are, they, are the ones who discover the problem responsible for saying, look, here's a thing, publish it, database or get a hold of the original developer and ask them to... Well, we track documentation bugs in the bug tracker just like we track mm -hmm. toolkit bugs or any other bug. Right? Okay. If there's a thing there. I mean, sometimes people have a unique p position. right? They may not be the person that wrote the library, but they're writing an example or another app. It, it shows up something particularly interesting about it. Well, they can go do it. And they, they can and they will do that. Um, because they just have a unique view of this particular thing. You know, It doesn't always necessarily have to be the person that wrote it that understands how to explain it. Right. Um, but I, I think as a group, um, we're, we've been pretty happy and pretty successful um, at doing, I think, a decent job. It's always get better. We get, we're starting to get decent feedback from customers in the last couple of years that have noticed that we've made it better. And, of course, anytime you get positive feedback, that reinforcement makes it easier to go and write the next amount of documentation. Um, you know, we get to the point where now we have too much and people are unhappy that it's too much. And, right. well, you know, you can't make people that happy. Um, and I think the other important thing is to you have to find a format that is a very low barrier to people doing it. Mm -hmm. right? if it becomes a, if there's technical problems with writing documentation, right, they don't want to learn, you know, we used to do it in LaTeX. Because we use LaTeX to HTML to generate the HTML and then used PDF and went to PDF for the PDF version. And that was great if you knew LaTeX. And if you didn't know LaTeX, it was bad. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't want to know LaTeX, it was really bad. And, uh, and, and, you know, and I agree, too, that you spend all day working on code and getting... And, dealing with the C++ compiler, to have to then spend your documentation time dealing with the LaTeX compiler mm -hmm. is pretty annoying. And so I kind of agree with that. But most cases when people want to complain about these things, the easiest thing to say is, okay, well, find me a better solution. And if it works, then you don't, you can win. We'll do that instead. So are you still using LaTeX or have you switched to something we, else? We've switched to the Sphinx stuff. Sphinx um, in fact, the previous iteration that used LaTeX was based off the then standard way that Python did their documentation because I always thought it was pretty useful. Mm -hmm. And when we went looking for a replacement for LaTeX, which wasn't just because of LaTeX, the LaTeX to HTML protocol was getting pretty long in the tooth and no one was using it anymore and the results were kind of ugly by modern standards. I said, well, let's go look and see what Python's doing. And this was a you know, a couple of years ago when Python had switched to Sphinx and their documentation just looked that much better. It did. And you go look at Sphinx and they, it's somebody who finally managed to take restructured text and make it usable and not yucky and actually almost fun to do. 
And because it's fun because the results are so awesome, right? They look great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we just kind of went down that path. And, and, and I think people are still not happy with having to learn a new language, but if you complain about learning restructured text, then I don't know what else you expect it to do except, you know, speech recognition. There's nothing. Well, you should recognize Quill. Quill ink and paper. Right. Well, people wouldn't want to necessarily probably do that either. It's, it, it, and I'm not saying it's not, it's not a hard problem. But it is, it is a, it is worthwhile, and we get enough good feedback from people that they recognize that that potential user. Well, what I find interesting about OpenAI is that it's it's those people doing the sales and support, and there's developers, but you don't have, for instance, someone specializes doing documentation or someone specializes doing QA. And I think that's pretty unusual for a software company. Well, it probably is unusual, and it won't last forever. Mm-hmm. Right? At some point, we will have a full-time QA person. Um, I think as it is now, that's not a very happy person. And, and I think at some point, QA probably has to evolve. A single QA person seems to me like the most hated person around and would not go to lunch with people and probably would be short-lived. Because I think all they do is just make everybody mad by telling them that stuff doesn't work. Right. It's probably a misunderstanding on my part. But we will drive toward that simply because it's impossible for at some point for people to test some of the more complicated stuff themselves. It's like proofreading your own resume. That's just a really bad idea. Well, you've got, the, you've got the problem that, of course, all scientific software has this, some of this stuff. How do you test it? Like you're developing a new, I don't know, force field or developing a new something. Well, you, yes. So there's there's objective tests and there's subjective tests. Mm-hmm. And there's, it works the way I think it auto versus the works the way the world works. Those are apples and oranges, right? Right. I mean, if you write, if you know what you expect the thing to do, you can write tests and say, this is what I think the answer is. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're using a force field, you're using an approximation. You're, you're, you are, for example, one of the things that, that's new we recently do is we calculate an entropy. Right? It's a p kind of rather drawn out process. It's not, you know, accurate to the nth degree like quantum calculation. It's totally usable. There's you know known limitations. So then you can't say, well, I'll go look up at the entropy calculated in some book and put that number in my test, and if I get it, the test passes. If I don't, the test fails. But what you can do is that you, once you're finished with the science, once you've published the paper, once you've established the kind of things we ought to get for test molecules, you can turn that into a test to make sure, well, if I run it on Linux and I run it on Windows and I run it on 32-bit or 64-bit or I call it from Python or Java, do I get the same number? Mm-hmm. Right? Do I don't have extra errors from floating point round off or some other weird thing going on with the system? Um, and and at least those kind of things catch um, consistency between the platforms. And then six months from now, when somebody goes and changes one of the moving parts, we suddenly start getting different answers because they've changed the optimizer or they've changed some other, you know, low-line code. Or it could be even, you know, changing something in OEChem that changes the chemistry model that affects the force field parameters and therefore different answers. Well, you need a test to catch that, right? You don't want to be surprised that suddenly the entropy calculations are different for a reason that has nothing to do with that end of the spectrum. So have you then developed a bunch of, uh, I guess, regression tests to say, here are all the tests with uh, these validation tests. That when you update a new compiler, update the OS, yeah. you then run through other stuff. So we have we have it in C plus plus. We have uh, the lion share are in, actually in Python mm-hmm. because that's a that's the consumer API. Um, it's the easiest way to write tests. It's the lowest barrier again to people who want to write a test is to 
is to be able to go and do it in Python. Um, but we also have them replicated as, as, as well in Java and in C Sharp. There's not as many, I think, in those yet as there are. Um, but because then you still need to test, you know, when we wrapped the C++ into Java, to, does it work the same way as if you wrapped it into Python or Python or C++? So, you know, and again, it, you, at the life cycle of a, of a software package that's shrink-wrapped and put on the shelf versus the speed at which we come up with new science and try to put it out. The testing is done in parallel with the documentation and done with the, with the development and done in parallel with the science, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, every bit of test code you write is code that's not writing the algorithm. And so it's a balance that you have to make sure that you do both, right? But I also think most everybody here, anybody that's older than a certain age that didn't start working out with automated test suites, has to come to the realization that this is a good thing. And they come to that because it saves their butt one day, right? They put in this test or somebody else puts in this test and they don't, and then they run something and all of a sudden the test fails. They go look at the test fail and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't even have to debug this problem. I made an error, the test caught it, I go back to my code and I fix it. I didn't have to spend five minutes or five hours or five days in the debugger trying to find this weird crash because the test picked it up. Well, that's how the difficulty when I do API development of if I try to push the tests too early because I have this argument with people who do the test first develop, test driven development where they do test first. Of I don't know what the API is going to look like. So are the tests work with API and I change the API and I have a problem with my desire to try to get full comprehensive tests. At the same time, I'm doing the API changes, I'm doing the test development, it makes it very complicated for me. So how early do you do the tests? Well, I don't think we do it from the... I mean, I think we write examples and tests, you know, kind of as all up C++ programs. So they're not built into a big automated test suite. They don't test every stinking little API point in some unit test way, because that does just kind of buy you into time later. But you certainly can write a functional test very early Mm -hmm. that, you know... If I give it this molecule, what do I get for the entropy? And in those first tests are the things that you can do from the beginning, and they shouldn't be too much effort to go change um, if you decide the API needs to fail. Now, the other thing you've got to realize is that, that you're, if you make big, complicated object APIs, you're buying into your own trouble, right? If you keep the object simple, if you put a lot of your functionality into free functions, then your first API is really small that actually works. So even if you did go write every test, you're not writing 100, you're maybe writing 10. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you've just, you, you haven't bought all that extra work until you need it. And by example of heavy, you mean the OELIB style where they had is methyl hydrogen, is oxygen, is all these methods on the atoms? Yes, right, 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 right. I mean, that has two, there's two problems with that, right? Is that that's not extensible. Right. If you want to say, if you want to change, if you want to add a new method to that, now you have to go change the atom API to say, oh, now it's this kind of atom. Um, you could decide at some point, well, that's silly. So we'll do, you know, what we do, which is we use predicates, right? Free functions that operate on the atom. Mm-hmm. Those are infinitely extensible. You just add another one. The worst case is when you add a bunch of stuff to the atom API and then decide it's gotten too big, and so now you start having predicates, and now when people want to do something, they have to decide, is this a member function, or is this a free function? Right. Where do I look? 
right? Now, it has caused some, it caused some early confusion to OEKIM users, right? <laughs> because people are used to typing mole dot or atom dot in an IDE and have it show every method that you could ever do to an atom or a molecule. And that's great until that list is 300 things long, and then you still can't scroll through it in Eclipse or Visual Studio in any rational way. Right. And the flip side is to have no members on the atom, and then you have to go say, well, what methods work on an atom? I have to go look through the whole API. And I get that. That's why we don't give people a big list, and that's why a lot of the OEK manual is broken out in functional areas. Mm-hmm. I want to do MCS. I want to do substructure search. I want to do... do reactions, or I want to do whatever, and you go look in those sections, and you find the functions that are focused around that, um, and not, you know, just every function that operates on an atom. Okay. One last question about testing. Uh, do you have any idea how much coverage tests you have? How much, how much of your API? You I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Um, in Python, for certainly uh, the, the older toolkits, it's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do touch a remarkably large part of um, the newer toolkits obviously are further behind, and in Java and C Sharp, they're further behind as well. Okay. Um, but I don't actually have a number. Now, OpenAI also develops some applications. They're both uh, command line tools and uh, graphical applications. So I was curious, though, so when you, I, I, when you talk about APIs, as a programmer, I go, API, understand how to do that. But when you start switching to, say, user interfaces and the GUIs, how do you test that? How do you work with that? I have no good answer for that. Do well, the, I don't think the world has a really good answer for that. That's that too. Speaking, right? I mean, I think that that is it, that's one of the things that's going to drive us to have more full time QA people. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that that people whose job it is is to figure out how to break it, which right. you're particularly good at just <laughs> as a hobby. Thank you. Um, I think is is different than the developer who's going to kind of go through a standard path because he's trying to make sure something works. It's got to be somebody different than the developer when you get to the GUIs. Now, you know, we use Qt for the GUI development. There is a decent amount of testing frameworks to do that with Qt. Um, by the time you know, when you add the fact that we have the scripting language underneath, we actually can do a lot of testing of some of our GUI apps by writing Python tests that run inside the interpreter and actually call the same functions that the GUI parts mm, do. Right. Um, so you can do some stress testing and some kind of big picture stuff running things inside that Python interpreter. If you don't have that, it is a lot harder. From the command line, um, you know, you can go crazy and write stuff that calls every argument with every other argument with random stuff and find things. Um, and we don't tend to spend a lot of time chasing those problems. Mostly we write functional tests with commands that we know, you know, are a reasonable set and have expected input and expected output and and, uh, and make sure that we get the same. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we've actually spent a lot of time on in the last few months is part of the kind of ongoing documentation and toolkit effort, but along those lines, is that we're rewriting all the examples in C++, in Python, in Java, in C Sharp. Simplify them, focus them on specific tasks, then we have a test that runs all four of them with the exact same inputs and right. checks that they get the exact same output across the entire suite of things. So not only does C++ continually reproduce the same answers, but if I run the exact same example in Python, do we get the same answers I got in C++? Right, because you, are, you have the combinatorial problems of different operating systems, different compilers on those operating systems, 
and different languages on top of those. Yeah. It. How, do you, how do you test with all, all the music? You support what? A dozen or plus different architectures? Well, you know, it's actually the world is, is simplifying that for us. But mm-hmm. yes, you have the tests have got to be automatable. They got to be in the tree. They got something you can type make tests while you're doing it. But um, do you have all those machines here that you can test them on, or what do you test? We them? don't support any architecture on a machine that we don't have running twenty four seven. Right, a real machine or a virtual machine? We use virtual machines for some of them simply because it just makes good sense to use virtual machines. Mm-hmm. Our machine room used to look like the shelves at Best Buy. Every one was different, <laughs> on, and those were a pain to, to keep track of. So we've we've switched to, in some cases, virtual machines for for build machines, and that actually doesn't work too well. When you want to go and build build machines and test machines for GUI stuff, mm-hmm. so some of the more popular, the newer, more popular, more common Linuxes, we actually have real desktops with 3D video cards that we used for testing and stuff in the GUIs. But the backend stuff is all the other things, all the other variations. They're all machines that you can get to, but they're not the kind of thing where you say, okay, well we're going to make this machine dual boot, you know, between. Red Hat 5 and SUSE 10. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes time to go do a test, well, one guy wants to test on one platform. We've, we've had that in the past. It just doesn't work. Right. So if we want to we want to have every platform available all the time to every developer to, to go and run a test on. And who then does the system administration of all those different architectures? We do. It's not that bad. Okay. We, there's there's, two, there's one, you know, one or two of us that, are, that do most of it. It's a pretty much... I think system administration is one of these things where you have to say, well, what are, again, let's go back to what are our choices, right? We could hire a full-time sysadmin. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't be a programmer. He wouldn't be a scientist. He wouldn't be one of us. And he would hate us, and we would hate him or her, right? It would be the adversarial relationship that exists in most other places where you have a full-time sysadmin trying to baby these machines. Mm-hmm. And since all of us would hate that, Right? We're not at the point where we're willing to give up control and give up the ability to know what's going on. We're not there yet. So then we have to make this kind of pact right? to say, okay, well, if this is the lesser of two evils. Yes, we have to do the work, but yes, we have control over what gets done. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that by spreading that out, you know, we've spread it out over four or five people, um, it, it's actually worked reasonably well. Even though you have to have then people who are kind of more... Um jack-of-all-trades, doing some documentation, doing some system administration, doing some programming. Well, you know, if you hire good people, you can do that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't just hire anybody. But if you have hired, if you hire good people, they can do all the pieces. And I think, I think there's an advantage to knowing, to doing all the pieces, because then you appreciate the whole process in a different way. But most people who come here come from chemistry. So they're, they're, you don't have... Oh, that's not necessarily true. I mean, we have a good mixture of folks who have computer science backgrounds as well as chemistry I mean, if they come in more as the scientific science side developers, then yes, they probably have a PhD. They did some coding in their degree and in their postdoc. They have to kind of get up to speed mm-hmm. in C++. Maybe they were Fortran guys before. or Maybe they were C coders before. And they do have a pretty good uphill battle to get up to speed on C++ and up to speed on everything. Um, but that doesn't mean they can't do it, and that doesn't mean they don't want to do it. And they have done quite well. Um, then we've hired, you know, people on the other end. They don't know chemistry, but they're GUI programmers or they're graphics programmers or, or those kind of folks. And that's, again, their computer science background, they don't have a problem picking up the algorithms. They don't have a problem dealing with the tools. They don't have to look, say, CVS, how do you spell that? It's not a problem, right? And uh, 
And, and the balance of all that has worked really well. Now, you're not going to go hire somebody who doesn't know anything about chem informatics or graph theory or anything, worked as a quantum mechanics person, you know, and wrote Fortran, and come in tomorrow and say, okay, you're now the lead developer on OEKIM, responsible for all the graph theory. That's not going to happen. And that's silly. But we, we have a widespread of stuff we do. A lot of stuff is physics mm-hmm. on one end, a lot of stuff is graph theory and chem informatics on the other end. And we tend to kind of put people on the pieces where that's what they do, and then they grow into the other areas as they kind of find things they're interested in. So then how do you structure the software? Do you have, do you have like, say, say chemifmatics? People are doing OAChem and depictions and fingerprints and things like that. Do you then have, like, a group that's around that to be working on that, or is it more fuzzy that some people work 80% of the time on this and 20% of the time on that? Yeah, it's pretty fuzzy. We don't have, you know, we have more products than people. So we have mm. multiple products per person instead of multiple people for, per product. I mean, right. that's, a, that's just the nature of our business model and, and us. And so, you, and we don't have a lot of hierarchy when it comes to groups within groups and group leaders. And uh, it's mostly a bunch of programmers. And, uh, and most everybody knows what they're responsible for. Everybody knows what part they own. Everybody has the freedom to go digging around in other places if they have a problem. Um, the advantage of everybody seeing everything is that somebody in Boston who's two hours earlier than us can have a problem at 8 a.m. Boston time and not have to say, well, I guess I just have to wait till somebody in Santa Fe gets to work and can go look at this problem in OECAM. They can go look. Now, if it's a core algorithmic thing, they're not going to just check it in without checking. But they, they're capable... And, and totally able and empowered to go and say, oh, well, here's the problem. And then the person here who's ultimately responsible will just come to work and find an email in their inbox saying, here's, the pro- here's what I did, here's the crash or the bug or that doesn't work, and, and here's what I think is the fix. Mm-hmm. Is it okay if I check this in? And this, this sort of corporate culture start from when I first started, or was this something you had to work at to get to? I think it's been here the whole time. Okay. I mean, it is a little bit different in the very early days, right? It was one product, one person. Mm-hmm. Right? Each person that came to OpenEye came to do that thing. So Joe Corkery came to do Vita. Mark McGann came to do to do Fred. Um, Matt came originally to do Omega. And so each person kind of managed their own piece. That lasted for a few years, but at some point the number of pieces outgrew the number of people, mm-hmm. the number of ideas didn't require us to hire somebody new. We had a night. We had the ideas in here. We needed to go do it. Um, and then we started, you know, coming up with these are the things we want to do now and what we want to do in the future. What kind of people do we need to bring in to, to do it? But I think the culture of everybody being on the same page and part of the same team is is driven mostly a lot by culture. It's also driven a lot by the fact that we manage everything kind of together. You know, we don't have a separate Git repository for every little piece that everybody, one person owns and no one else has any right access to and you have to go cherry pick it. You have access to everything in, in one spot. But if everyone manages everything, how do you manage, say, the relationship with the customers? Is there anybody you can feed to talk to any of the customers to the information they want or do you try to put that through well, one so, person? So, you same? know, I think we, we're pretty open to talking with customers. Mm-hmm. I, I think... The, the, you have to balance letting people talk to customers only to the extent that it becomes a distraction that prevents them from getting work done. That's usually never the case, right? And I think 
everybody here knows what they know and what they don't know. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I really don't have any fear that I have somebody's going to go talk to a customer and tell them something that's completely wrong and, and, and set a bad precedent. I think that that's just not a problem. Most people know what they know and what parts of the code they understand and know who to ask if they get a customer request for something that's different. And how much of the direction of OpenAI is based then on direct customer feedback versus where you all think the, the science is going to go for the future? Well, I think the science direction is driven a lot by Ant and, mm-hmm. and, and his desires and his ideas and what he sees as the future for the industry and for us. And so no no macrodynamics. So, well, there's a lot of things, right? Until they, find, until they have a proven place in our portfolio, we're not going to do them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you'd asked anybody in this company five years ago, would we have a fingerprint toolkit or all the 2D we have, the answer would have been a resounding no. Are you kidding? We now have a a significant investment in 2D. Mm -hmm. Not because, uh, you know, anything other than the fact that we've now come up with, I think, some reasonable ways to actually put it to work alongside 3D, not instead of 3D. And and now it's it's an important player as part of our tool set and not just something because somebody said, can you guys do this? We have to use for it. And I think that that's really the important thing is that because we have a pretty close relationship with a lot of customers, right, it's, it's not that we go looking for questions. It's not that we say, well, we have this idea for this new product. What do you think? It's almost that we have a constant back and forth from our user group meetings and other things where, you know, we could come up with an idea but have to realize, oh, well, I talked to so-and-so at last year's cup about that very same thing. Now, they asked me. I came to the same conclusion. Now I've got this. Maybe this is something we should do. Right. Right? Uh, and that tends to happen an awful lot. So is cup the most important way to keep in touch with the users or what the future is going to be for the users? I, I think it is. Mm-hmm. I think um, we do get a lot of – we do get a decent feedback via support for, from different things. But people are funny about that. Some people love writing support, and we hear from them regularly. Some people don't want to ask ever. They just want to figure it out for themselves, and they suffer in silence, and we we don't always know. You know, we do spend a lot of time on the road, mm-hmm. a lot of time visiting customers. And those are also opportunities for people to say, you know, I had this problem three months ago, and I never could make it work. And the first question is usually, did you write support? And the answer usually is, ah, I didn't have time, so I went on to something else. Because we understand that customers have, they're busy, right? Mm -hmm. And so if something impedes their workflow right then, Mm -hmm. they're really good at working around it, either using another tool or doing another job or just going to do something else on their to-do list. And spending time writing up a bug report and sending it in is usually not high on their list, and I totally understand that. Because we're probably all guilty of that with some other product and some other piece of tool that we use. Um, but nevertheless, I think it is an important avenue for us to, to hear from people when things don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, we do occasionally hear from people saying how great something does work, which is nice. Cup tends to be more of those opportunities because customers can talk and customers can. You see a customer give a talk, you know, and he uses all your tools, and, and you think, Holy moly, this is why I work here. Because they went and took a tool that I wrote and turned it into something that I never thought of and got some great uh, utility internally. And in fact, one of the things that we find, which is an important part of the toolkit perspective, is that if a, it depends on the company, right? But, but if you were a, a turn-the-crank guy, 
right? So in other words, you buy this piece of software, you pour stuff in, you turn the crank, results come out. Right. At some point in some big organizations, and this is a corporate culture thing from the cus- our customer sizes, right? That boss could say, well, what value do you bring to this equation, right, to them? You're just turning the crank. I could hire a cheap person to turn the crank. Mm-hmm. Toolkits give people the ability to customize things in a way that a canned-up application doesn't. And by customizing things, coming up with a new workflow, coming up with a new algorithm, combining multiple algorithms in a way no one's ever really done before, is a way for people to show why they're part of the equation as a customer side right. and show why they're adding value in their in the eyes of in, in, in actual the workflow of that company, differently from just a turn the crank application. And some people really like that. It's a control thing for some people. It's because they you know, have always been a software developer because they're working informatics thing. But it also is that at the end of the year, you can say, I did this. I built this thing no one else has. It solved particular problems or it found particular leads or it, it, it come somehow or other you know, did something that, that I couldn't have done otherwise. Um, and that doesn't hurt if customers are happy because they are progressing and advancing in their own uh, company. And that's a good thing, too. Right? Okay. So I'm going to end up with, uh, how did you get into this field? How did you get into the field? I know you started off in the, as a, working on a nuclear sub, and then you came into chemistry and software development. How did you end up in Santa Fe, New Mexico? Well, I, you don't have enough time for the whole thing. It's just a <laughs> short weird, version. It's a very weird path of getting out of the Navy, following an old professor who was in Idaho, realizing I was a danger to myself and my fellow man if I worked in a lab, <laughs> switching to theoretical chemistry, and then landing in a pharma company doing this stuff because somebody had to do it, and kind of growing into cheminformatics and C++. And, uh, and it's a, it's a weird thing. I was a customer of OpenEye before I was came here, and uh, yeah, I don't really know to this day how I managed to kind of work this weird path. But well, I remember you did the uh, Python bindings for OpenBabel. Oh, yeah. Or OpenLib, right, yeah. which became OpenBabel. Right. Yes, I was, a very, I, I, was a, I was a very early Python programmer mm-hmm. because I was an even earlier Perl programmer. Mm-hmm. And I, in grad school and, again, in... In my first job, I wrote a Perl program that I couldn't read six months later. And that was the last Perl that I ever wrote. I switched to Python. At the time, there was no OELib. There was no nothing else. I had to write my own everything. Right. Um, and uh, we don't even think we had daylight at that time at that company. I didn't have access to anything. So I wrote my own little set of tools to do some stuff that needed to get done. Um, but after a while, I kind of got tired of that and wanted to to use somebody else's right. tool and uh, and kind of grew from there. But it, I knew I was going to be doing it in Python no matter what else mattered. So it really, I think it's the, it, the Python stuff is what got me here. It's not what's kept me here. So. And so the Python and doing chemistry is what took you all the way to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah, well, I guess that's true. And maybe the scenery too? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for the interview. And thank you all for listening to another edition of Molecular Coding. Cue music. Thank you for listening to Molecular Coding. This podcast and transcript are distributed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 unported license. The theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Steffen. I'm Andrew Dahlke.
Yeah, the only reason I say this is one of the podcasts I listen to. The guy always promises to edit stuff out. And when he says that after you've just heard it, I realize, like, he didn't actually do it. No. No. <laughs> he didn't even edit out him admitting that he, oh, yeah, we'll edit it out. 